I'm your host, Thomas, data scientist, data engineer, and you're listening Let's Talk AI. On this podcast, we receive experts to talk about their experience, visions, challenges, with no fear to go into technical details. If you're looking to learn more about AI and related subjects, you're at the right place, so make yourself comfortable and enjoy. If you like this episode, please give us a review on your favorite streaming platform, such as Spotify or Apple Podcast. You can also find more content on my LinkedIn newsletter. Welcome. Welcome on this new episode of Let's Talk AI. Today I'm with Seth Early. Uh, I could define you as CEO of an AI company and uh, author of the VAI-powered enterprise, but how would Seth Early define himself? (laughs) That's a good question. So uh, I guess I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a grandfather. I have uh, three grandchildren. I, one of them just turned one year old. The others are uh, 12 and, uh, and 13. Uh, and, uh, and my daughter, my daughter is a Deloitte consultant. So, so we talk shop, which is kind of fun. Uh, but I also, uh, I also am someone who is into fitness. I like to work out. I like to do martial arts. I like to do weightlifting. I mentioned I have shoulder surgery on Monday because I was a little too enthusiastic with some of my training. Uh, but, oh. uh, and recently started Aikido, which is a lot of fun. Um, but I've been doing uh, Shotokan uh, Karate for 30, 40, 40 years now. But uh, So that's been interesting. But uh, wow. I think, you know, an entrepreneur, I, I'm a problem solver. I like to, uh, to teach. I like to share my knowledge. I like to uh, do interesting, innovative things. I'm, I'm very curious. I also uh, have a love for science. Uh, my background was chemistry. And I still love to read Science Magazine and Scientific American and, and have discussions uh, in that space. So, um, you know, and, and I try to be a, 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 a mentor and a coach in my leadership role at the organization. And I know you described it as an AI uh, business, but it's really an IA business. I like to say we're more about information architecture than artificial intelligence. So everybody kind of positions themselves these days as having some AI secret sauce or, you know, some, you know, some part of what they're doing is, is all magical machine learning and all this. And we're like, you know what, first thing about AI is forget AI and, and look at the business and then look at the data, look at the content, look at the information that is needed to support uh, whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. And if there is a machine learning algorithm or if there's an AI program or application that can, can help with your process, uh, help with some specific intervention, great. Uh, but many times it's more about the blocking and tackling of understanding processes, mm-hmm. having good data curation uh, capabilities. And, you know, uh, a lot of uh, efforts these days in things like semantic search and uh, knowledge graphs are trying to make up for our past sins in poor data uh, management and poor information management. So part of what we try to do is help organizations clean up their their house, their their content house, their knowledge, their product information, their customer uh, data, customer information, and then build on that, build capabilities once you have mm-hmm. a solid foundation, right? Mm-hmm. Organizations are trying to bolt on, you know, AI uh, algorithms and machine learning algorithms to solve a problem, but they're not really taking that step back and looking mm-hmm. at their, uh, their information flows from a holistic perspective and saying, how do we need to support those information flows? What do we need to reduce the friction uh, in ter- yes. in, internal information uh, management. So that's uh, a long-winded answer to uh, the things you said. I'm also listed as a, as a uh, you know, people think of me as a thought leader. 
Uh, I was recently named as one of the top um, global influencers in AI, which, you know, who knows if I deserve that, but I'll take it. Uh, <laughs> and then I was named as a, an influencer CEO for um, uh, for 2022. So anyway, like I say, better than being called a bonehead, but uh, I'm not sure I give it that much uh, uh, credence. But anyway, so those are those are some of the things that that uh, define me, just uh, sharing my knowledge, uh, being innovative, uh, trying to teach the industry, you know, what's what is uh, uh, what is real and separating the noise from the hype. Right. And mm -hmm. executives have a clearer understanding of what they need to do to leverage these tools and technologies. And this is perfectly what we're trying to do on this podcast. So that's that's great. And and thanks a lot for coming on this podcast and and uh, sharing your experience, uh, whether it's uh, how to raise an, an AI business and be a, a CEO and influence people and share your experience while building um, a family and, and, and being here for your daughter. So maybe I will, I will also, I would also like to have some point of view regarding that, uh, maybe just to, to get in touch with, um, with the subject. So you mentioned that you talk about, uh, AI comes, but maybe in a second place and sometimes we have to take a step back, um, regarding the step back and AI. So uh, information, uh, architecture and uh, artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. I would like to ask you on your point of view, uh, because you've been uh, in the industry for some time, how have you seen the things evolved in the field for the companies? Can you share a bit about that? Yeah, well, you know, back in the day when I uh, started this business, it was in the uh, mid 90s. And Sure, that's probably before you were you were born. <laughs> probably yes. <laughs> uh, you know, I uh, we worked in an area uh, that was uh, kind of emerging at that time, which was called groupware and collaboration and knowledge management. And at the time, um, I worked with Lotus. Lotus. Uh, it was a program called Lotus Notes, and uh, uh, people used to say Lotus did poorly, but nothing else could do at all. Uh, and it was really about knowledge management. It was really about collaboration. It was unstructured information. It was connecting different systems and different networks together and getting Macs and PCs to talk to one another. And, you know, really uh, uh, facilitating this whole knowledge worker way of thinking. You know, it was, it was getting away from, uh, from uh, uh, you know, mainframes to client server to PC. And, and really what's happened over those years is, is a huge, huge numbers of changes. I mean, it was back before we really had uh, the, the, you know, much, much commercial use of the Internet, right? Back in the early 90s, you know, people were just trying to figure that out. And uh, organizations were trying to understand, well, what is this web thing doing? And I remember sitting in one meeting with a client who said, you know, our problem is we don't need, we don't have enough information online. It's like, okay, well, we're not saying that now, right? We, it's not like we don't have enough information. So we have way too much information. And, but at the time, you know, people were really starting to digitize things for the first time, you know, they, they had paper processes. It's hard to, to imagine back then. I remember coming across, uh, I was moving a number of years ago and I came across this pile of business cards that were in the back corner of my desk uh, in a in a drawer, kind of hidden and 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 forgotten. And I looked at these cards and I said, "What? It, they, they look strange to me." I was like, "What's wrong with these cards?" And then I noticed there was no email addresses. There were no email addresses. There was no mm. website. It was before people had email addresses and websites. And you can't even imagine wow. that, right? Everything is nope. so digital. You know, back in the day when 
we're looking at you know at the the precursor to what I call our magical devices, right? Our our, our uh, iPhones, our smartphones, and they call them personal digital assistants (PDAs) and you know the Palm Pilot. And those things were horrible, right? They they did not work at all, and or very well at all. And then, but then look at them today. You know, they're they're just part of our lives. They're you know so much of our world is just embedded in these mobile devices, and they're an extension of ourselves. And that is really um, something that has just emerged and, and become uh, our, our central focal point in, in our world uh, on personal and professional levels. And at the time, you know, ba- back way back when, that was just a fan, that was just science fiction, right? That was just some imagine one day when, right? And it didn't take very long for that to happen. So the changes have been uh, pretty immense. And, you know, an artificial intelligence uh, back then was really kind of going through, it was coming out of the AI winter, right? Where people had gotten discouraged with AI and they were not getting value from it. And, you know, one of the uh, professors back way back when said, used to say, uh, AI by definition doesn't work. As soon as it works, we call it something else. In other words, you know, word processing was a first incarnation of AI. Well, it was because it took the human expertise and judgment and, and uh, built programming that actually emulated that. But we didn't call it that. We didn't call it AI. We don't call it AI. We call it word processing. <laughs> we call it word. You know, we, we, so, you know, all these things that there's so much AI and machine learning that's under the covers. Search has used machine learning for decades, right? And so people don't think of it that way, but increasingly it's under the covers. But what's happened over these years is that, you know, we've, we've had greater computing capabilities, you know, to the cost of, 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 of processing and the power of processing has, has changed and evolved, you know, the, reducing the cost, increasing the speed and the capabilities and the, the capacity uh, data. We have all of this data that's, you know, unlimited, uh, really, uh, that has been thrown off by all these programs and devices and applications. And so, you know, with that, with the power of the processing, the cost uh, uh, decline, the increase in data, the improvement in the algorithms, we did kind of come to this new renaissance of AI. And what's interesting is, you know, way back when in the early days of AI, we called we 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 had a symbolic approach, right? We, we did knowledge representation uh, around um, understanding, uh, you know, uh, unstructured content and understanding, you know, what 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 AI was trying to do was was was, was really trying to understand knowledge representation. It was also still dealing with large amounts of of, of structured data, but we were trying to understand and, and and build things like virtual assistants or build artificial intelligence programs that could emulate what humans did. And with that, we used a knowledge representation, knowledge architecture, knowledge engineering. That has kind of, you know, as, as the um, statistical approaches have Im- increased and improved and been become more pre- uh, prevalent, a lot of the symbolic has kind of been set aside, but you really need both, right? And that's what people are calling hybrid AI these days. It's saying we do need those traditional machine learning uh, uh, statistical approaches, but we also need to tell the system what's important. We need to tell the algorithm the names of our products and our services and our solutions and our people and our, our customers. And we need to articulate all of that. And that's where knowledge graph technology comes in, right? We start to define those things and we start to build out you know, that knowledge architecture. So those things go hand in glove. But I think the the answer to this is, you know, huge amounts, huge numbers of things have changed and really this end-to-end digitization of experiences. Uh, and we're still looking at that, right? We're still trying to uh, 
continue to remove uh, manual processes and friction, and we're still trying to continue to, to digitize our value chains. And you know, much of the time, you know, it, it's as we as we improve and get more mature, we find new areas of opportunity, right? And so, uh, so this cycle has kind of evolved. It's gone faster. You know, the things that were competitive advantages ten years ago are just cost of doing business today, right? It's just it's just the, the foundation, right? It's table stakes. So now we have to say, where are we going? Where are organizations going in order to continue to stay ahead or continue to uh, to try to uh, differentiate from their competitors. And so this is just an ongoing, you know, arms race, so to speak, you know, to do that. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks a lot for this, uh, for this answer. Um, so we've understood quite well how it evolved. Uh, it is surely, uh, we, we've, we've started from a period where I wasn't born, as you mentioned. Uh, and it is very, very interesting for me to, to, to have this, um, this data as how it was before and how we're only touching the surface of how AI can uh, remove frictions, yes. as you are saying. Uh, maybe my follow-up question w- would be regarding your company today. Reduce because... friction and also reduce the cognitive load on the human, right? When people talk mm. about cognitive AI, it's not because the system thinks, it's because reducing cognitive load. And that's what every application tries to do. That's what everything, you know, any yes. usability study, any improvement in navigation, improvement in search, personalization, contextualization. Mm. It's always about making it easier for people to solve their problems and accomplish their tasks. And so could you define maybe a little uh, like um, uh, like the cognitive load? Can you define what it is for, for a human? I'm sorry, say that one more time. Oh, cognitive, define cognitive load. Sure. Yes, so, sorry. So it's basically the amount of work that you need to do to solve a problem or get an answer. So imagine... Imagine that I said uh, to you, you said, you know, I have a problem with my laptop, you know, and I and I can't I can't log on. I say, okay, Thomas, here's the manual, <laughs> All right? Figure it out, right? I, that's a lot of work, right? I have to go through. I have to study the manual. I have to try to understand this stuff. I have to try to find my answer. I have to. It takes a lot of work, right? I don't want that, you know. I want to. An, I want my answer. I don't want to work for that. So yes. So if I can say. Well, look in chapter four for your answer. Okay, that's a little better, but I still have to study chapter four, right? Mm-hmm, and I still have mm-hmm. to go through that and understand these details and on that. That's mental work. That's mental work. I don't have time for that. I don't have the energy for that. I don't have the appetite for that. I don't want to do that. That's it's it's a dot on my day. I just need to solve my problem. I don't need to learn all this stuff. I need to solve my problem. But then I could say, well, here's the answer. In chapter four, okay, great. So I said, so I started with the manual. Then I said, look in this chapter. Then I said, okay, here's the answer in this chapter. But I can go next level. I can say, here's the answer in this chapter based on the equipment that you have, based on your technical background, based on your error codes. Here's that specific answer, that contextualized, personalized answer. So that's what we want. And, and what that does is if you can give me that, without making me go through all of that work of study and research and figuring it out and troubleshooting and all this, that's what I want mm-hmm. because I don't yeah. want to work for it. And, and whenever we mm-hmm. have a site, it's easier for us to process. Like you go to a website and go, wow, this website's great. They really understand. I, I love the, the navigation. I love the products, all that. Why, why do you love that? You love it because it makes it easy for you to see the things that you need to see. It makes it easy mm-hmm. for you 
to uh, align your mental model, how you think about your problem, how you think about whatever it is you're doing, whatever it is you're trying to accomplish, your the products that you like or the solutions that you like or the thing that you want. And it's surfacing that. And that's why you like it because it's easy, right? And if it's mm-hmm. hard and I can't find the answer, I get frustrated and I simply say, you know what, this isn't worth it. Let me go somewhere else, right? Let me go to another mm-hmm. website. So whenever we have that roadblock, whenever we have that increased cognitive load on the human, when it, it, it should not be that difficult or there's another you know site or another organization that is not going to put that impediment up, right? It's like water going mm-hmm. downhill. It, you know, mm-hmm. if it sees an obstacle, it's going to go around it, right? Humans are the same way. If I see an obstacle, I'm I'm going to go around it. I'm going to try to go around it. I'm not going to mm-hmm. I'm not going to deal with that, right? So that's mm-hmm. why this whole idea of uh, you know of of cognitive AI is so important because it's what it's doing is it's saying I'm going to reduce the amount of work that you the human needs to put into this to get to that answer. And if you're a call center rep, you're like, oh, I have a customer on the phone and I'm, I'm trying to solve this problem. Well, how do you find that answer? Like you're doing research, you, you know, you as a call rep, oh, I have to go to these different systems and tools. Well, make it easier for that call center rep because then they can solve the problem for the customer, right? So again, mm-hmm. it's all about uh, being able to navigate and negotiate through this information landscape and ecosystem to get to the mm-hmm. stuff that we need that's important to us, that's going to help us with our goal and solve our problem. And the more work that we have, the more mental work we have to do to do that, the greater the cognitive load. All right. Thanks. Thanks a lot for specifying. Uh, this made me thinking um, uh, regarding uh, what you're trying to achieve today with your company, as you mentioned uh, before. So could you maybe... Um, Explain to me and to the one who listens to you, uh, what are you trying to achieve with this company? Sure, sure. So my company is called Early Information Science, and uh, we've been around since the 90s, as I mentioned. <laughs> so very long time. And, you know, our, our tagline is we make information more usable, more valuable, more findable, or more findable, more usable, more valuable, right? But the idea is to say, mm-hmm. how do you get to that information? And that can be at any level. That can be You can be a Fortune 500 company, a Fortune 100 company. We work with many, many, uh, I think we worked with 25% of the Fortune 100 uh, over the years. Um, And it it can be any environment. It can be a website. It could be an internal knowledge system. It could be search. It could be the customer experience. But it's it's really making those information assets more usable, you know, and more findable and more valuable, as I say. And it's really monetizing that. You know, one of the things that we did for a client, um, which was Applied Materials, and this is in my book, was we we helped their field service organization uh, reduce the amount of time it was spending looking for answers, right? They were spending, the field service engineers were spending 40% of their time. They were spending 16 hours per week searching for information. And we mm-hmm. reduced that by 50%. We cut it down to eight hours per week. Well, that ended up saving them about $50 million per year. They said 3,000 uh, field service uh, engineers. So those kinds of savings are very su- significant and substantial. Another uh, story I like to tell is a company that um, uh, that had a, uh, a digital transformation uh, initiative going on. Uh, they're a multi-billion dollar firm, and it was uh, a transformation where we were actually doing the data architecture, the content architecture, product information, um, uh, hierarchies, the, the taxonomies for product data, the categorization, and they had uh, a million product. Oh, you know, they had hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of products and product combinations. So, so this is not trivial. 
and they had to, we had to get 13 CTOs to agree on a hierarchy, right, or or multiple hierarchies, or actually get them to sign a piece of paper saying they agreed. Uh, but uh, but what it did was it it actually made this transformation. It was a 25 million dollar transformation. Made it made it successful. Made it work. If our piece was not done, we weren't responsible for all of it. Our piece was maybe three, two, three million dollars, but without that piece, it would have failed. And with that piece, it was a success, and that led to a multi-billion-dollar increase in the market capitalization of that company. If it weren't for the work that we did, they would have failed, and they would not have realized mm. that value. So the value mm. for these things is is enormous. We have another uh, customer who has been. They tell us they save hundreds of millions of dollars per year on you know create once publish everywhere you know content operations to say let's take this content and let's push it out to all of our distribution channels let's push it out to our partners let's have it uh in our marketing programs let's use it for customer self-service for uh for a field service for embedded uh information in the products themselves and they save hundreds of millions of dollars per year in content operations being able to do that and they also power their virtual assistants so part of what we do is say look you need to look at these things holistically. It is all about reducing that cognitive load. It is all about personalizing that experience, contextualizing that experience, whether it's an employee or a customer, right? An internal customer, an ex external customer. And the same principles apply. It's understanding that user, it's understanding their journey, and then it's surfacing and anticipating those needs using a knowledge architecture that, that supports those specific use cases. So the work that we do is really understanding those user journeys, whether it's an employee journey, uh, again, and that's a lot of process analysis, or whether it's a customer journey, and then building out the supporting uh, data architecture that's going to enable that journey to be streamlined, right? And to mm. help that customer get to the information they need. So it's improving customer experience, but it's also reducing costs, right? Because if people mm. can find the answer, they don't need to call the call center, right? So you're doing call deflection. You know, the whole mm -hmm. point of, you know, when people call someone, why are they calling the call center? It's because something is broken, right? Something's not working. They can't get something. So if you can mm -hmm. make that information easier for them to find and to self-service, you're reducing that. You're making it easier on them. They make it, they're, they uh, 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 have a better experience. They're, they're less frustrated, mm -hmm. but then we're also uh, reducing the cost. So you improve the customer experience. You're improving, strengthening that relationship, and you're reducing the cost of serving that customer. So that's kind of what we do, you know, and, and, it, and it has lots of different manifestations. It could be semantic search, right? It could be it could be on-site search. It could be e-commerce search. It could be, you know, content management. It could be knowledge management. It could be personalization, right? We're doing a project right now for a company that is understand trying to understand how to increase their conversions for software subscriptions, right? And so mm -hmm. part of that is building the right data model for the customer and then understanding what is it that catalyzes that that um, uh, going from a free version of their software, the trial version, to a paid version, right? What is that? What is that? Uh, what enables that? What causes that? And, and there's mm -hmm. content that causes that. There's there's interactions. There's messaging. There's demos. There's you know free trial. There's all these different things. There's there's calls from their their sales force, and what are the right things? How do you describe that customer? And those attributes of that customer to say, "Ooh, they're ready to buy," right? And how do we understand mm -hmm. those signals that tell us they're ready to do something? And then, what are those things that we need to give them in order to get them to do that, right? So, so it's mm. defining that in terms of that customer journey. It's defining the customer attributes, and that's defining the content 
that is surfaced to that customer when they're in that buying cycle, right? And, and mm-hmm. what is it that actually is going to push them over the edge? Is it this particular case study? It may vary depending upon the industry they're in, obviously. It can be, it'll vary depending upon what role they're in. It'll vary depending upon what problem they're solving. So we need to describe all those things in data terms. We need to describe all those attributes of the customer. We need to describe where they are in their journey. We call those high fidelity journey models, meaning they're not just pictures, they're pictures that also have a, a data and metadata representation of their intent throughout their journey. So that's what your systems can respond to, right? So mm-hmm. again, you know, we're trying to understand that journey. We're trying to define the attributes that describe that customer and where they are in that journey. And then we're trying to bring to that customer the things that they need to make that decision and to do that conversion. So all of that is really about, again, you know, streamlining those experiences, getting the right information to people in the context of their problem, right? Understanding what that context is, understanding what their needs are, and then bringing those assets from the organization to bear to, so that they can, they can make those decisions. Okay, great. Great insights. Uh, it made me think of, uh, I was curious because um, I, I might want to ask you about when does, um, uh, at what point do you feel that a company is ready to implement AI? Because what you've yep. defined right now is like, there is no AI if there is no um, understood data in a way that, Okay, there is this data, we understand it, but maybe we need to create new pipelines that, with, that will give us new data that will be more useful to train a model and to answer the specific needs. Mm-hmm. And all of this is, there is no rules, really. It's just like creativity and thinking out of the box and then, well, apply statistics and then try to implement new models, models into models, and uh, and see how, how, it, how it develops. So I would like to ask you that, but I'm also super interested in in how do you manage uh, this kind of project uh, as um, as the CEO of the company? Sure. And I think uh, I would like to ask this one uh, as the first question. But if you want to sure. to to reach out to answer a little bit the other two, sure. feel free. Sure. So let's let's take this from a, a perspective of you know looking at the oh. information problem, right, or the or the process problem. At the end of the day. You know, AI is not going to uh, take a complete uh, a complex process and automate all of it, right? It's not going to replace a human, uh, not at this point, right? But it but can take, it can have specific interventions. So the first thing is understanding, you know, what are the objectives of the organization from a strategic perspective and what are the obstacles and what are the bottlenecks? Like where, where are those pain points, right? And again, you can kind of think of this as, well, we, you know, this is a brand new field and, oh, there's... There's uh, blue blue oceans out there, and boy, it's not based on what our current state. It's based on some new value proposition or new product, and and, and that that's kind of saying, well, let's take this clean sheet approach. Let's not worry about our current processes. You know, to some degree, you have to do that anyway, right? You have to say, what's our ideal state? What's our future state? What what based on our you know, if we could do anything, what could that be, right? What what are the possibilities if we had that ideal? you know, customer experience or that ideal, you know, employee experience, you know, how do we kind of visualize what that that future capability could be? And so there's a little bit of clean sheet thinking there. And then you have to compare that to, well, what do you have today? Like, how are you going to get from where you are to this North Star, this future state, this this ideal uh, uh, version or this ideal experience? 
And then you have to start breaking that down and saying, well, what do we need to do to get there from a data perspective, from a content perspective, from a knowledge perspective? So it's it's really starting off with, you know, where are we today, right? Where are Where is the organization today? So current state assessments are very, very important to say, what does the world look like for the organization and how well are they doing things? So, so do they have a big, huge mess on their hands in terms of product information, for example, right? E-commerce product information is very important. Uh, <clears throat> or is it in decent shape, but we need to do the next iteration, we need to get to the next level. Uh, and so part of this is saying, what's that current state? And then how well are you doing things? You know, like there's a there's a maturity assessment to say, do you have the foundational capabilities to adequately manage product data, content, the customer experience, the uh, uh, the knowledge uh, processes? You know, do you have those foundational capabilities or is it, you know, do you not have any? And, and again, there are different elements to these. So we could say product information management or customer uh, uh, data or customer experience requires that we have some governance process and some change management, right? One of the reasons why we get into so much trouble is because we have kind of the wild west, right? People make whatever changes they want, different departments go off in different directions. So governance, governance is a very important piece, right? It's, it's, it's boring, right? It's, it's, it's not exciting. It's not a shiny bit, but it's part of that basic blocking and tackling. It's basic discipline of the organization. So you have to say, you know, if, if you don't have good, foundational processes, it's going to be very difficult to do things that are more advanced and more uh, and more evolved. So the first thing to understand is, you know, where are we today? You know, how well are we doing the job that we're doing? And then what's our competitor uh, landscape look like? Are the competitors offering things that we don't have, right? Are they, are they doing things that are a threat to us? Um, what are our customers asking for? What do they need? What do they want? Right? Are there are there new innovative startups that are serving a customer segment that could then become some threat to us? So we have to look at these things and say, what is that? What is that? Uh, where are we today? What does that future state look like? And then and then building out that roadmap to get there usually entails lots of different initiatives. Right? It's not a single thing that you do to pull a trigger and build some functionality. It's it's working along multiple dimensions. Like I say, governance is very important. Foundational architecture, you know, uh, the the technology infrastructure, you know, the ability to um, to model these processes, right? Those all require a level of sophistication that if you don't have uh, have that, it's going to be very difficult to do something more advanced. We have an orchestration maturity model. That orchestration mm-hmm. maturity model has different elements. It has, you know, it has a lot of uh, pieces to it, but it's it's based on four other maturity models, right? One in content operations, another in uh, customer uh, data and customer uh, 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 customer processes, uh, another in um, in product information, another uh, uh, in uh, uh, knowledge, right? So it's knowledge, content, product data, and the customer. Those are our four pillars, and each of those has a maturity model. And then those all get subsumed into an orchestration model because each of those components is necessary to do personalization at scale, right? Which is at the end of the day, getting getting people the information they need in the context in which we need it is what everybody's trying to do, right? So it doesn't it almost doesn't matter what your organization is trying to accomplish. Speeding up those information flows, speeding up that information metabolism of the organization is going to improve whatever your results are, right? It's getting people the information, making them 
uh, allowing them to operate more effectively, more efficiently. It's getting customers the answers they need. It's innovating more quickly. It's getting products to market more quickly. It's responding to customer threats more quickly, market opportunities more quickly. All of those things allow for greater agility, right, in, in terms of how the organization is evolving and serving their customers and serving their employees. So when we start looking at how we want to manage these projects, we have to start off with what are those capabilities that we have in place today? What are those capabilities that we need down the road? And what are those gaps? And if we have these gaps, we can't ignore them and we can't pretend they're not there. We can't say, oh, you know, uh, uh, you know assume good data, right? You can't assume that. You have, to, you have to build that. You know, many times when we go from pilot to production, one of the problems is that the data, you know, we have the opportunity to cleanse data and to fix it and to architect it and to enrich it in a pilot. A situation or proof of concept or, or a sandbox, but we don't have the ability to do that in production. So when we go to production, we don't have that. So now what we're saying is if you have aspirations to do this stuff and you're building these projects, you cannot forget or ignore the foundational stuff. Now, here's the problem. Many organizations don't know that they don't have that foundation. They don't know that. They get told by the IT organization that, oh yeah, we got this, or they get told by a vendor, oh, you can just outsource that. Or they get told by, you know, somebody that, that you know, that's not that important or it's boring or, you know, or, or this technology is over, going to overcome that. So knowing what those real dependencies are and knowing what those gaps are, and many times they're hidden, right? They're not obvious. So organizations get through, you know, e-commerce initiatives and then all of a sudden they get to the end of it. They go, oh my God, our product data is horrible. Or our customer data is horrible, or we don't have the content and the op content operations, or we can't support, you know, this new product launch, right? They get to this, this point where they suddenly just discover these gaps, but those gaps can be identified early on. It's just, you have to be able to recognize that and you have to be able to budget for it. And, you know, executives have been, they've been burned, right? So they don't want to make these investments sometimes unless they really have strong proof points. So it's a very difficult uh, situation to correctly calibrate the organization's maturity versus where they need to be and what they need to accomplish. And again, building that capability, building that maturity or backfilling that maturity is critical because if you get to the end of this and you don't have those foundational processes, you're going to fail. I uh, tell the story of a, of a, uh, a company that was doing um, personalization and we built the personalization architecture for them. And it was great. And, it, you know, got all the metadata models and all of the details and so on. And at the end of the day, when they deployed this, the marketing organization is like, well, wait a minute. How do we personalize for this audience versus this audience? They did not know what truly personalized marketing messaging was. So they had the same messaging going to everybody. So they had this capability, but they didn't know enough about the customer to be able to really personalize that message. Well, what is that telling you? That's an immaturity of a supporting process that's upstream. That's marketing not knowing enough about the customer to provide that personalized result. The, te the technology was there, the capability was there, but they were lacking the maturity and capability in this other area. So that's why when we talk about orchestration, these things are so important because there's so many dependencies. And if you're missing certain pieces and certain components, it's not going to lead to the outcome that you, that you need. So managing these things has to be, you know, with a clear, clear understanding of what those uh, elements are, what those capabilities are, what those, what those foundational pieces, what those dependencies are, 
right? And again, it's it's a lot of times, you know, it's it's not clear. People don't have a sense of, well, how bad is it, right? How bad is our, you know, people are trying to deploy cognitive AI. Well, that depends on knowledge. Well, if you don't have any uh, knowledge architecture and you don't have any knowledge bases, guess what? You can't deploy it, right? Or you have to spend all this time on training the, the AI because you don't have that content, right? We train them with content, high value content and knowledge and data. So anyway, so the, so building these, these initiatives requires that we have to have a very, very solid understanding. We also have to have leadership that has social capital, right? Because people have to trust them. You know, you can't put somebody in charge of these things that no one listens to, <laughs> right? And many times leaders don't want to risk their social capital on a failure, right? They're like, wait a minute. I don't want to sign on to this because I have a great track record and this looks like it could be risky or I don't understand this or this is a moonshot. You know, I can't I can't sign on to it. So sometimes you end up handing it over to people that are willing to take that risk, but maybe don't have the social capital. So there's a lot of ramifications uh, to these types of things. Mm. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot for this very complete answer. Uh, there are many points that uh, I would like to. Uh, uh, to ask more questions, uh, but once that, that came in mind, um, so I, I really want to also in this podcast to have time to talk to your book. So maybe, maybe if you can, um, if you can say, uh, if you can share a little bit of the process on, on your company, uh, because you described all those key points, like solving those pain points and understand very well all those factors that uh, are very important to manage. Uh, this kind of project and being able to coordinate it um, uh, at the moment of recruiting uh, in, in your company. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is an interesting topic: the recruiting in the in the AI field or in the in the software development um, field. Uh, how do you approach uh, new talents mm -hmm. uh, that might want to join your team? How do you face? Maybe you're not doing the interview yourself. Maybe someone is in charge of it. Sure. How do you face this? Well, that's a great that's a great question. You know, one of the things that we want to do is we want to build new capabilities as well, right? So, if we want to be able to support certain types of technologies or certain platforms, you know, we need to build those capabilities or we need to hire, you know, the skills. And the question is, you know, when do you hire those skills, right? Do you hire them before you have the work or do you hire them after you have the work, right? And sometimes you need those skills to help sell the work. Right, because you need that subject matter expertise. So many times we're partnering with with uh, uh, companies that may have those talents and that want to bring them to the to one of our clients. Um, but you know we're also recruiting uh, for for different types of roles um, that are more in our sweet spot that we want to uh, then extend. Right. So it's it's a matter of saying we need somebody for this particular project with these capabilities. Uh, because we're professional services, we can't hire people and put them on the bench. We have to hire them and put them on projects that they can bill. Um, but then, you know, again, it's it's trying to understand, well, what, what do we need right now for our customers? But what do we also need in the near term or in the future to support some of the uh, opportunities that we're, we're, we're looking at? So it's not an easy um, answer. And I think that, uh, you know, we do have a, a director delivery that does that recruiting but it is mostly based on what do we have in the pipeline, right? What do we have? Uh, what are we selling these days? What are our clients asking us for? And then what do we have in the pipeline? And, you know, we're not a, you know, we don't, we don't put machine learning engineers on the ground, you know, in our projects. We are more about 
again, doing the analysis, uh, building, you know, we, we, we do deployment, but, you know, many times um, it's deploying uh, initiatives and in, in software that has, uh, it may, you know, has uh, AI capabilities or, or uh, machine learning um, uh, elements, but we're not doing the heavy, you know, uh, deep in the weeds machine uh, learning engineering and data engineering. We're doing the stuff that is more about configuration and about deployment and about, um, you know, uh, uh, solving the business problem with tools that are somewhat uh, better understood rather than, you know, building out new language models or building out, you know, machine vision or building out those specific algorithms, right? I'm mm-hmm. leaving that work to the the big, the big uh, players, right? Because that's what they're doing. So for us, it's mm-hmm. really about, you know, finding that match between the talent and of course, culture is super important, right? We need to make sure that there's good cultural fit. And, you know, part of our core values is, you know, our honesty and transparency, you know, uh, uh, being better as a team, you know, being passionate about what we do, uh, you know, doing the, th- you know, doing the things we say we're going to do, you know, being committed to the customer, right? Those, those uh, cultural uh issues are super important. Those core values are super important. So that's a really important piece to bring on, you know, new, new, new talent. Uh, but then it's also a matter of finding someone who can do the blocking and tackling, solving the problems that we currently solve, but then building a new capability, right? So you maybe you have a skill set that is very aligned with what we're doing today, but then you have some other skills that are aligned with things we want to do, right? And then mm-hmm. that bringing that kind of talent to the table helps to prepare for that new capability and it helps to uh, sell that to clients as well. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a really good question. And, you know, right now there's a lot of people that are, you know, getting laid off by some of the big technology players. So there's more talent in the market, which is great, mm-hmm. um, you know, but then the economy is slowing. So, you know, you can't scoop up all the people you want because, you know, everybody's, you know, some of our large clients are cutting back as well. Right. So everybody's mm-hmm. kind of seeing that. So it's usually, you know, when the economy is good, you know, there's there's scarce talent. When the economy is not good, there's lots of talent. But, you know, you can't always bring them on when you want to because uh, mm-hmm. of the economy. So, but it's a good question. And it's something that, uh, you know, when organizations are looking at this, they have to do similar things, right? They have to say, what are the capabilities we're trying to build? And, you know, how can we solve problems today while building those new capabilities uh, for the future? And then bringing in talent that's commensurate with that. Thanks. Thanks a lot for, for sharing all of this. So I would like to ask you about your book. Uh, I've read two questions, uh, two questions uh, from, from the book. Uh, I, remember, uh, I remember to the one listening, the AI-powered enterprise. enterprise. Um, so the first one is, how will the future be different as a result of artificial intelligence? Mm. And the second one, what must companies do to stake their claim on that future? Mm. Uh, mm. I don't want to do spoilers on your book and I recommend people to check them out, but maybe can oh, you yeah. give some insights for one of your yeah. other questions or maybe both? Yeah. And, and don't worry about the spoilers on the book. You know, there's a lot in that book, so you're not going to give away the, uh, the ending. <laughs> All right. Okay. You're not okay. going to give away the, the secret sauce. Uh, it's fine. So, um, so, you know, th- there's a not, there's a number of different ways to kind of think about this. I think one, uh, way of looking at artificial intelligence is the, through the cognitive assistants, the, the chatbots, the, the, the virtual assistants, the intelligent virtual assistants, whatever you want to call them, the conversational assistants, the, 
you know, I, I just wrote an article and there's lots about this topic and there's lots of different types of AI assistants, right? They're all similar things. They, they're all trying to uh, reduce that cognitive load on the human. They're all trying to, uh, you know, facilitate access of information and they're trying to do this in a conversational manner, right? And so when you look at these bots today, they're not very good. You know, they fail pretty gracious, great. They, they don't fail grace, gracefully, right? They fail in a very, you know, uh, difficult manner or they fail in a, in a very blatant manner. Um, and, and there's not a lot of kind of easy ways of recovering when they do fail. Um, you know, we always need to have the ability to escalate to a human. But again, these things are, are very uh, brittle today. They're not very well designed. Uh, they're not highly capable. Uh, but that's going to change. So, so we know that just like the Palm Pilot and the PDAs of 20 and 30 years ago uh, were not very good, right? They're really good today. They work well. And we know one day that technology will be such that there's a scenario in the book in the first chapter, a guy named Alan Perkins, who goes about his day with interacting with virtual assistants from the time he wakes up in the morning, you know, scheduling bots and and uh, uh, and uh, ch checking his portfolio, doing his travel, you know, helping to find new parts. And these are different virtual assistants. They're different cognitive agents. Some of them work for him directly, his personal assistant. Some work for his company. Some work for other companies. You know, some are concierge uh, virtual assistants, but they are all very conversational. They're all very capable. It's like talking to a human. It's really similar to, you know, asking questions in a very uh, natural way and getting the answers in a very natural way. And it's just like what we what what you see on Star Trek, where they say, "Computer, tell me this." Right? Uh, it, that will be our future. We know that. We know that because. That is the nature of technology. One day, we will be conversing with these things every day, all day. That's just going to be it, the, the world, right? That's that's the nature of the beast. You know, technology starts off very uh, in a very challenging, difficult, brittle, you know, not very helpful way, and then it evolves over years and decades. And so that's going to happen. We know that's going to be the future. The question is, what's standing between us today? And tomorrow, and that's and that's data and content and knowledge, right? There's a lot of work that organizations need to do. I mentioned this other company that we worked with that is saving the hundreds of millions of dollars per year in content operations. They're about five to ten years ahead of the market. Well, guess what? You know, they're going to be building their capabilities much, much more quickly, and those are going to be evolving at a, an increasingly uh, rapid rate, and it's going to be very difficult for companies to catch their competitors to catch up with them because they're going to be so far ahead. Uh, and so when you start thinking about what organizations need to do, they need to get their knowledge house in order. They need to be able to get an understanding of, they have to have maturity and knowledge architecture and maturity and knowledge engineering and knowledge operations and content operations. All of these things need to be in place in order to have that stake in the future. Because if they don't, they're going to lose out. And the story I've told in the past is uh, a publisher of uh, textbooks in the uh, K through 12 space. Uh, they were actually um, getting beaten to market by a competitor by six months. And we were brought in, we talked, you know, the CEO was like, why is this happening? And we found out that a competitor was actually using component content, which is 
the way we build these things, right? We And this is many years ago. So this competitor was very hard, far ahead of the market. They had a million objects in their repository and they were able to, you know, build a textbook um, uh, uh, rough draft, you know, because you could, you could uh, pull content based on, you know, state level standards and uh, grade level and subject and, you know, learning objective and student capability and all these different parameters. And you could very quickly assemble a draft, not something that was finished, but something that an editor could work on. That was getting them that six month advantage in the marketplace. And the CEO said, wait a minute, why don't we have that? And the executives uh, in this team, his leadership says, that's the project we've been trying to get funded for the last three years. And it keeps getting pushed off, right? It keeps getting postponed. And so the executives, the, the lead CEO said, well, why don't, what, well, how long is it going to take us to do it now? And they said, well, at least a year, right? Because they're three years and the customer, the competitor is moving ahead. Well, guess what? They were not able to catch up. Okay. They lost that market. They lost that market. So for organizations, this will be existential. This is not something that they can push off down the road and kick down the road. If they're not building these capabilities today, in fact, you know, Gartner has said that knowledge management for AI is going to be the fastest growing area with the largest spend in the next, in the coming years. And I totally believe that. And we're starting to see that kind of um, uptake and that kind of, uh, you know, uh, that, 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 that demand, you know, we're starting to see organizations really start focusing on this. And again, if they're not, they're going to be in for rooted awakening because when they, when they have competitors that are taking their customers and offering lower prices and being able to provide greater levels of customer support, you know, that's going to be very difficult for them to recover from. Okay, well, thanks a lot. Uh, thanks a lot so much for all the information that you've shared in the episode. Uh, I'm, I have my last one question. Um, so before, before saying it, uh, yeah, I, I thank you again for, for your presence on the podcast and, and for sharing your vision, uh, for sharing about your company. I wish I would have had more time to ask you about your family and how you manage, but maybe that's for another episode. Uh, uh, let us know in the comments or... Um, Share with us how you thought about this episode and if, and if we need to do a second one. Uh, for the last question, do you have any message regarding the AI community or, or anyone out there? Do you have a message? It can be a personal message. It can be an AI-related, business-related. Mm-hmm. Do you have something to share with us? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the message is to constantly reinvent yourself, right? To make sure that you're, um, you know, looking at your capabilities and your skills and thinking, well, what, what else do I need to do? What else do I need to understand? What else do I need to know? And, and not being afraid to build new skills, to build new capabilities, to build new knowledge. You know, uh, many times people are like, Ooh, that's, that's beyond me. Or that's, you know, that's something I don't know, or I've never done that. And, you know, you've never done what you've never done. Right. I, I like to say, when I started this business, I really didn't have any knowledge of the industry or contacts or, network you know i it was really truly bootstrapped from nothing right I, the you know it, it i did not have those contacts so so i had to invent everything and you know when people say oh we've never done that or oh we we you know we can't do that you, you can't it, it, don't don't think that way always think what's possible always think about you know how you can move things forward and really you know th- certainly there are limitations certainly you know i'm not going to become a machine learning engineer at this point in my career but I don't want to, and I don't need to. But the point is that 
look at your skills, look at your opportunities, think about where you want to fit in and, you know, be very clear about your, your purpose and your goals, right? What are you trying to accomplish? And then staying focused on the things that are most important to you. You know, there, I, I listened to a great uh, presentation last night by a Buddhist monk who was talking about focus and concentration and, you know, your, you, you put energy where you focus. And so focus your yourself, focus your awareness on the things that are important to you and the goals that you have. And be careful about getting distracted from things that are not important or that not aligned with those goals. And those goals, it doesn't mean work all the time. It could, you know, family uh, goals are very important, right? Personal goals are very important. Personal, you know, uh, it's not all about work, right? In fact, you're not going to get to the end of your life and think, well, geez, I should have worked more, right? <laughs> you're going to, you know, so, so trying to keep your mind open to, what's possible in the future, you know, looking at ways of, of reinventing yourself and, you know, building new skills, trying new things, not being afraid to fail and trying to find an environment where, you know, failure is acknowledged as part of the learning process, right? You don't want to be in an organization that punishes failure, you know, that you want to be in an organization that recognizes that failure is part of, you know, growth, failure is part of learning, failure is part of building skills and capabilities and knowledge and expertise. And, uh, and that, you know, it's important to, to understand that, you know, we like to say there's no, there's no, you know, there's learn or grow. There's no fail, right? It's learn or I'm sorry. It's, it's win or learn. It's not, there's no fail, right? There's win or learn. So you either win or you learn. It's not a matter of failure. So try to try to find an environment that in which that is encouraged and, you know, don't be afraid, you know, to fail. Don't be afraid to make those efforts. And, you know, there's a lot of possibilities out there for organizations or for individuals. And, you know, the future is very, uh, is very bright in many areas. So obviously, we have lots of, you know, systemic challenges in the world. But, uh, but I think that many of the things that we're doing with technology can mitigate those things and can help uh, be parts of the solutions. So, so that would be my, my message for folks. Thanks a lot, Seth Hurley. I wish you a wonderful day. You too. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Congrats. You've made it to the end. I hope you had a great time and that you learned a few things. To learn more about AI, you can subscribe to my newsletter or check the blog. And to support the podcast, you can give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also share it with two friends, colleagues, or family members that might be interested. I wish you to have a wonderful day. Bye.